Welcome back, Chris, to the World XP Podcast. You are now a published author. It's about... The f- yeah, we had you on three times when you were supposed to be published like a week later, and that didn't happen. But, you know, life happens, and so here you are. If you need, if you don't know who Chris is, go back and watch the other ones that he was on, because it's very science-y. We don't have time to hash all that out currently. Well, we could if we could if we wanted to, but we'd be here for a while. So yeah, nobody well, wants to hear that. Welcome back, welcome back. Good to have you. Thank you. No, it's my pleasure. I'm uh, I'm excited to be back. Do I have? Am I the the most returned guest? I think you are. If you count the group ones, yes. Uh, Jason has been on three times, I think, by himself. But this is your fourth time on the show. But twice you were with uh, Katie and Tom as well. So, oh no. Yeah, it's only a fractional appearance then on the group. Yeah, how, however you want to, we can say you're tied. However you want to stick the, however you want to stick the feather in your cap, I'm good with that. Cool. Yeah, so I'm back. Uh, I have finally published the book. I have a copy of it here. There it is. There it is. It is uh, What the Heck is a Clinical Trial and Where Do I Find One? It's published on Amazon, but you can find it um, just by searching the title or by searching my name, Chris Nerschel. Or clicking and the link in the description. We're clicking the link. Yeah, so it's um, it's great. So like you said, I've been working on this book for a, a long time. Um, and it feels like it's been almost close to done for the better part of a year or more, <laughs> but, um, it finally, you know, it finally came to fruition, a couple, a couple of recuts and, uh, and yeah, now it's, it's pretty short, you know, it's not a super long book. It's a book written for patients, you know, with the idea that, um, for people who, who find themselves getting a, a cancer diagnosis, things kind of get, um, emotional and a little bit like a whirlwind pretty quick. Right. So you, the way this story typically goes is you go into the doctor, you feel a little off, you have some pain somewhere, you know, something just seems a little off. Um, or maybe you're in, you're kind of a little bit older and you're getting one of your normal screenings done. And, um, and you get called into your doctor's office and they say, Hey, uh, bad news. You have either we're concerned you have cancer and we're going to do a biopsy and confirm it. Um, or we know up front, you know, you, you have cancer. Um, and then what happens is they typically, I mean, there's a set series of treatments that people walk through, uh, which are called lines of therapy. So it's, you know, kind of akin to hockey, right? Like you've got first line, second line, third line, but you're, you're just cycling through the things that are approved treatments. Um, and for a lot of patients that'll, that'll result in, um, you know, in either in cancer going into remission or, you know, in the age of immunotherapy, you might get some long-term survivors who, um, we tentatively use the word cured around, but um, a lot of patients will will then progress, right? And they'll eventually run out of therapies and um, then they don't know what to do, right? I mean, you your doctor has been acting as your guide the whole time and they're, you know, appropriately holding your hand and saying, okay, like, you know, we're okay, this is what we're doing now. This is what we're going to do next. Um, and that's all well documented and kind of fits in sort of a well-oiled machine as you're getting through the script of what you're supposed to do. But when you get to the end of the script, uh, things get a little wild. So your doctor, a lot of times won't, you know, what treatment you get next will depend on a lot of things that aren't directly related to medicine, right? So it'll depend on who your doctor is, where they're located, you know, how into research they are or aren't. Um, 
it'll depend, you know, it'll, it'll go down to the stage of like, it'll depend who they had lunch with last week, right? Because they had lunch with a friend who's running this clinical trial. And then, you know, you show up in their office and they say, hey, Eric, this is great. I know, I know we just got past your last line of therapy, but I just had a, a lunch with Dr. Malone. He's got this great therapy. You know, we're going to get you on this trial. You're good to go, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you're, you know, you're in a scenario where, I mean, you just walked into your doctor's office and they said, Eric, you have cancer. Nothing worked. But I got another plan. Right. I mean, it, it's in some way like it's it's not intentional on the doctor's part, but it's sort of pressure sales 101. Right. Yeah. Eric, I had your car in the lot, but it's not here now. But what I've got for you is this other car. Yeah. Right. Um, and so so then patients end up on a trial. Um, and again, it's the same thing. Right. Your doctor's holding your hand. They're saying, listen, I'm going to send in my nurse. They're going to bring in the, the forms. We're going to go through the consent. Um, your mind is reeling because you're still trying to figure out which way is up. At this point, yeah, of course, um, they're going to ask you if you have any questions. You won't have any questions because you're not sure what you haven't, you haven't even sifted through the information yet. Yeah. Yeah. And then at the end of the, the day, you're going to get kind of a packet that's going to say, hey, do you want to be on this trial? It's going to document a lot of stuff about the biology mm-hmm. um, and you're probably going to take it. That's, you know, that's what's going to happen. Um, and, you know, it's not to say that there's something wrong with that approach. But I think from a patient perspective, um, there's a lot of things patients would do well to understand about clinical trials and what they are and what they aren't um, and how you can kind of figure out what you're signing up for. And then actually it turns out there's a database that you can search, right? So you don't have to just take your doctor's advice. You can just flip on your computer and in 10 minutes, see every clinical trial that's recruiting patients within 60 miles of you. Um, and you can just send them an email and join that yeah. trial instead or get some information or, or a second opinion or, um, yeah. So, and, and that, so that was really the driving force behind this book was just putting that information together so people know what they're walking into. Sure. That makes sense. I think, I know when we talked before, when we've talked just generally throughout life, when, when we're talking about this subject in, in particular, it's difficult because even if you can go through what a clinical trial is, you're kind of, once you get to that point where all the normal therapies have not worked, you're kind of stuck anyways. Mm -hmm. So it's like, (laughs) do you want to die or do you want to try this thing? It's like, yeah, I'd rather not die. So I'll try this thing. But then if you want to do some research in it and you go to that website, for instance, like you see another clinical trial for like, you don't know. I feel like it's difficult to hash out, okay, this drug says it'll do this and this treatment says it'll do that. They both say they'll help with this cancer, but mm-hmm. I don't know, like, like for, for example, using physical therapy as an example, like you want to use ice or heat, like they both could work. Right. But like you, like for me, I know which one would work better in that particular situation because I've got mm-hmm. like that level of experience. People don't have cancer the same amount of that they have sprained ankles so like right how do you does does the book go into that or is just more just like this is how the trials work and this is what the terminology means and this is what because i feel like that would be a whole nother set of things to go through yes so it it does um but it goes at it from more of a systems perspective than a biology perspective so 
the rationale, so when I've been asked in the past to search for clinical trials for patients, right? So I'm, I'm not a medical doctor, um, you know, typical disclaimer, none of this should be considered medical advice. You know, you should consult with your doctor. Um, but when I'm asked to look, you know, patients come up with questions like that, right? So they say, hey, I found this thing about, uh, there's a trial about a cancer vaccine and um, adoptive cell therapy where they're putting T cells back in and there's chemotherapy mixed with a small molecule inhibitor. Which one should I take, right? Um, and the answer is, I don't know, right? And, and the trouble is that people assume that somebody does know, right? They know which one's going to work. And I think that's the wrong way to think about this, right? So I think people's gut instinct is to try and figure out which therapy they should go after, right? Do mm -hmm. I want an mRNA? Do I want, uh, you know, do I want something else? Do I want radiation? Do I want chemotherapy? Do I want them both? Do I want them mixed? Do I want them in a certain order? Um, you know, that kind of thing. And I think that's the wrong way for most patients to think about it. Um, because the reality is, you're, if you're not a medical person, right? I mean, this is, again, this, is, this book's written for people who aren't in the medical space and find themselves sort of forced into it. Mm -hmm. If you're not a medical person, you're never going to be able to catch up in time, right? You're never going to be able to, to catch up on an MD level, intimate knowledge of the different therapies. You just can't yeah. be that right? It, and it's not a, it's not a reflection on you. I mean, I can't do, you know, when my car breaks down, the odds that I can become a, a full fledged mechanic in the next three hours is effectively zero, right? Uh, it's just not going to happen. I love that you said effectively zero, such a statistician. <laughs> you just hedge your bets, right? That way you don't get burned. <laughs> but um, so then the, so then the question is, if you're a patient, right, how should you think about this? If you're not gonna be able to pick the right therapy out of the hat, um, I think there's two truths that patients should understand, right? So the first truth is that your doctor can't pick it out either, right? And that is going to sound like a slight to doctors. And there are a lot of doctors who will disagree with me on that. And that's well and good, and you should hear them out. Um, but I, this is the point I would, I would posit to people who are thinking about this. Um, the average clinical trial in the United States, right, costs something like $20 million a pop, right? And if you, to get through FDA approval, you've got to get three of them um, on top of the fact that you're going to spend just ungodly amounts of money on these things, right? I mean, you're going to get up into the hundreds of millions of dollars in the development of this. Um, so... The problem is when you look at sort of the development of, of drugs, you know, you, you take, if you're a company, right? So if, if we assume that a company's goal is to make a drug that works and to make a whole bunch of money, right? That's kind of the goal. Um, it would behoove you to be able to pick out of a hat which drugs are going to work and which ones you're wasting hundreds of millions of dollars on, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it, it may, if you could just pick the ones that work. Um, and so along those lines, you pay a, real, a bunch of really smart people, right? You find every medical professional you can, you go to Stanford, you go to Harvard, you go, you bring in these scientific advisory boards, you do everything you can to get as much advisory information on board while you're making your decisions. And with all that, you know, the amount of money that could be made that if you could do this reliably, correctly, um, how often do you think a drug gets approved, right? So if you're from the first trial to FDA approval, what percent make it all the way through with all of those experts on board and all the money on the line? 
I know you mentioned this in a prior episode, and I don't remember the number, but I know it's stupid low. Yeah, it's 3%. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's worse than guessing. 50, 50% would be guessing, right? It's yeah. 3%. Um, and so, you know, again, the point of that's not to say, like, there's no way to get at this, but to say that even the smartest people that people can come up with who could make bajillion dollars by being able to do this reliably can't do it reliably. Full-time people cannot do this reliably. Um, and the issue is a little bit, it's a little bit in the weeds, but it comes down to the fact that no amount of mouse work or monkey work or any other species can replicate humans. It just, we're just not there yet. So at some point you oh, just yes, have to try geez. it, right? You just have to try uh, it. Yeah. Um, and so that's what it comes down to, right? So a clinical trial is an experiment. And if we knew how it was going to turn out, then you wouldn't have to do the experiment. Um, and so with that in mind, like realizing that nobody can pick the right answer out of a hat, the real question is then can you bend the odds in your favor, right? And mm-hmm. so the example I use in the book is I say, if you're going down to the track, right? Let's, let's say we're going, we're going to go for like a bachelor party. We're going to go bet on some horse races, right? Sure. And I tell you, Eric, if you can pick the right horse out of these 30 horses, you'll win a million dollars, right? And then I say, also, I'm just going to pitch this idea to you. There's this other race over here. There's only three horses in the second race. And if you get the right one, you get a million dollars. Which race do you bet on? Obviously the second one. Right. You bet on the second one, right? Because you've got a 30% chance. Um, And so this is what I point out to patients in the book is that if you're in a phase one trial, that's the first step of the process, you've got a 3% chance, right? One out of 30 that you're going to hit something that even becomes a therapy. Mm -hmm. If you're in a phase three trial, you're in a one in three chance. It's 30% of those eventually get approved. So just knowing that there's a difference between a phase one and a phase three you can get 10 times the bang for your buck, yeah. right? You, you know, if, if you can, you want to be in a phase three trial. But like we said, that's not part of the discussion in the normal clinical setting. It's just a, hey, you know, again, my buddy is doing this thing. You know, do you want to be in on it? It's this mm-hmm. therapy. We're doing antibody blockade. We're going to block the checkpoints on your T cells. And then you're going to get an immune response. And we see these really good responses in the blood. Do you want in? And you're like, you never know. Like nobody knows to ask what type of trial, what phase is it? How many patients are there going to be? Is it blinded? You know, there's a lot of terms Mm -hmm. that people don't understand that would affect, I think, their decision-making if they knew. Yeah. That's a lot. I want to unpack a little bit, a little bit of of what you talked about. The first thing is, so I'm going to go in order of most succinct answer. Well, and two, how, and then we'll go down the rabbit hole, probably the last one. Um, you were talking about, so there's, so the first thing is, um, you mentioned blind, blind clinical trials. We've heard that a lot in the news recently with, um, say the, the big eye horse drug thing that if I say <laughs> sure. it will get us kicked us off YouTube. Um, the second thing is you mentioned that you would argue that sometimes doctors don't know what's the best one. And then the third one is regarding the cost of clinical trials and, that sort of thing. So the, the first one, what did, when you say blind clinical trial, mm-hmm. uh, for those listening, what does that mean? Sure. So blinding is um, effectively what it means is that you may not know which drug you got, right? So blinding, it's an anti-bias 
measure that, P, that clinical trials introduce. And the idea is if your doctor doesn't know if you got the treatment, you know, the experimental treatment, or in this case, typically the standard of care treatment. So sort of a general, um, a general catch-all like a radiation or a chemotherapy. So if they don't know which one they're giving you, they can't bias the reporting of the results. And so what they do is they'll send doctors vials and it just says, you know, this is simplified, but the vial just says A. The drug is A. You're going to give it to your patient and you're going to tell us if it works or not, right? And we're going to send a bunch of, a bunch of vials to a bunch of different doctors at a bunch of different sites. Nobody knows if they're administering the real drug or the placebo slash standard of care. And by doing that, they prevent people from kind of putting their finger on the scale. Like, well, I gave the experimental drug and I think my patients are doing better. Um, and so that's what blinding means, right? So it, it, it means, you know, a lot of t- recently in the news, it's been a lot about sort of vaccine trials. And in vaccine trials, you're either, you're given a jab in the arm and they don't tell you if it was a vaccine or nothing. And then they just see what happens to you, right? And they don't tell you that's, and they don't know. Fun. Yeah, so that's, that's part of it. But the reason it's built in, right, is to prevent bias, right? So if you right. really believe in this technology, right, like giving people the benefit of the doubt, if you really believe this technology is going to work and you know you got the experimental drug, it might modify your behavior a little bit. And then over yeah. the course of thousands of people, it starts to look like this thing works when it doesn't really work. Yeah, I the for the CEO of Pfizer was on Lex Friedman's podcast. And for those of you who don't know who Lex Friedman is, I highly recommend you go look him up, but he mentioned that for their new, their, I guess they're developing a pill for COVID. I think it's called Merck or something like that. Or wait, mm. is Merck the other company? I don't know. Merck's the other company, but yeah. Oh, well, they're, the they're, Pfizer, Pfizer, Pfizer developing a, a pill for, for COVID. And he mentioned that, so they're doing this blind clinical trial and he's like, there's only two people in the world that know who got what, like which doctors got what, and they have like separate like passwords or code keys to get into the database and they need to use them both together Mm -hmm. to get in. So it's like super, super secure. So before we jump onto those other two things, is that fairly common practice or is that more secure due to the nature of the situation? The reason I ask that because if Mm -hmm. one guy gets hit by a bus, then like, right. <laughs> are they ever going to get that data again? Not that I'm sure they have ways to do that, but is that, yeah. is that standard to be that secure for, for something for a blind clinical trial like that? Yeah, it is. And it's a mixture of wanting to trust your data, right? So like if you're a, a pharmaceutical company, you don't want to be tricked into thinking this thing is working when it's not, because then it won't sell, right? Like eventually people will catch on and then that's, that's bad blowback, Right. Um, and also, I mean, again, that's the cynical read on it. I think a lot of, you know, as a, as a member of the pharmaceutical industry, you know, I, I want to help people. I don't really want to trick myself into thinking I was helping people. Sure. Um, but the other thing is, so this gets back to our earlier discussion. So it is common in later phase trials. So it, but it's not common in phase ones. So these are the kind of things that people don't understand about what they're signing up for. Right. So you as a, you know, again, using you as an example, if I were to sign you up for a phase three trial um, and in cancer, a placebo is not typical anymore. So in vaccines, it's typical that you'll just get saline or you'll get the vaccine and they'll be like, well, go see if you get the disease or not. Um, But in cancer, that's considered unethical, right? Cause it, I mean, it's sort of leaving people untreated. 
Um, and so typically what they'll do in cancer is you'll get, like I said, standard of care or something called a physician's choice. So it'll be you'll, your doctor won't be blinded, but you will. Um, and so your doctor will get to choose a therapy. So, the, you know, like, and they just won't tell you that you're getting chemo yeah. and not the, not the experimental drug or something yeah. like that. Um, but yeah, so that's typically common in the later stages. But in an early stage, like a phase one, you're typically not blinded. You're told up front what you're getting. Um, and they, they, they are going after the reason that they can do that is they're going after something different, right? So this is the other part of thing that people don't understand is that a phase one trial is not even really trying to determine whether the drug works or not. That's not really the goal. Or just determining Uh, whether or not it's going to kill you, which is pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Why is not blind then from the, from that perspective, because you'd want to know if you might die or get yeah. like or have diarrhea for 3 weeks or whatever other crazy side effects that that makes you do that makes sense mm-hmm. that makes sense um the second thing was doctors not really knowing what would be best and for me i i think that comes down to people who don't know want to trust somebody that knows and then mm-hmm. when the person that you're supposed to trust also doesn't know then that's a little bit uh worrisome mm-hmm. I find myself doing that with like physical therapists occasionally if I get injured and it's not getting better. And I'm like, why is it not getting better? And they're like, well, don't really know, to be honest. It's like, well, you're supposed to know you went to school, but also everybody's different and they can't know the exact, like the exact things. And so I think for that, it comes down to, it's not really a question. Just thought I had when, when you were talking about that, but I don't know. Do you like for you, you don't really have, we've talked about this a lot when, I would text you like, Hey, what should I do about this, this, or this? You'd be like, I don't, I don't know, dude. It's like, you don't have a problem really saying that. And I feel like that's good from, I wish more people in positions of authority would just say that they don't know. Because for me, like we've seen this a lot the last couple of years, people don't want to say that they don't know. And then when it's found out that they said one thing and it wasn't that thing, then people mm-hmm. get upset. And so for me, if like, it's, I don't know, that's just a personal sort of uh, pet, not pet peeve. I don't know. Preference, maybe observation. One of, one of those things. I don't know. Yeah. And and again, this isn't to, to totally slam on doctors, right? Of course, I think of course. They, they know. I mean, if you're the cancer patient, then having your doctor say, I don't know, is kind no, of devastating too. Yeah. That's horrible. <laughs> but it, um, you know, it sounds like they're saying like, well, this was fun. Good luck. Yeah. And I totally um, understand why they don't want to say, I don't know. Like the, you, like when you're treating the patient, mm-hmm. that's, you want to do everything like you can to save them. So it's like, you don't want to sound like you're giving up. Cause I feel like that would be more troublesome, but right. just a but, general sort of statement. Yeah, no, I think so. And, and I think they, you know, they do, they're busy people, right? I mean, I, I I don't know every clinical trial. So I live in Boston, right? I don't know any medical professional who would tell me that they know of every clinical trial occurring in Boston right now. It's impossible, right? Like nobody could know that. Too many patients, Uh, too many this, too many that, paperwork, all sorts of stuff that's going on, which, yeah, I don't know. So like it kind of, whose responsibility before we go to the, the other one whose response is it it's both i guess people's the patient and the doctor responsibility a little bit to kind of know mm-hmm. like 
as a patient, you got to take care of yourself, but also as the doctor, you should probably know some stuff, go at relevant clinical trials going on. Like, obviously if you're a cancer doctor, you're not going to go to yeah. a clinical trial for, for like diabetes or whatever, mm-hmm. but so it's kind of both a little bit, I would think, is that sort of how it usually plays out in practice? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think you're right that it's a, it's a little bit of both. I think they're, um, the patients and the doctors are kind of working on opposite ends of the spectrum. So, mm-hmm. um, part of the goal of this book was to kind of help get those two in synergy, right? So the doctor, like you said, has a bunch of expertise and really not much time to Mm -hmm. spend on kind of your particular issue. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they lend their expertise and come up with a a solution in reverse. You have tons of time, right. But not much expertise. Um, And so the, I think the optimal way this relationship works is that you as the patient will bring options to your doctor and ask, for input, right? Mm-hmm. So you could come back with a list and say, listen, I came up with this list of five clinical trials. There, two of them are phase three. One of them's a phase two, three of them are phase one. Um, what do you think? Mm-hmm. Right. As opposed to, like I said, the normal version, which is like, well, let's just check what's in our hospital. Cause our hospital has lots of clinical trials, you know, right. and, and they do. But when you're, when you're in a scenario where the ideal situation for a patient is to land in I would argue that for any individual patient, they are better off in any phase three than any phase two than any phase one, right? Yeah. It, like it's sort of immaterial what they're testing mm-hmm. um, from a odds of success ratio. Um, and so, you know, like I said, if, if they if there's not a phase three trial at your hospital, but there is one on the other side of town, you just wouldn't know about it. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's not in your, you know, kind of your circle. Um, so yeah, so I think that's the kind of thing that a patient could really benefit from, from saying, Hey, look, I found this thing, you know, instead of going to this hospital on the East side of town, I just have to go to the West side. Um, but it's a phase three, you know, I was thinking about it. What do you think? Yeah, that makes sense. The last point I want to make, and I'm Googling this example real quick because it's of the, when we had talked before, um, I was always of the sort of mindset that well sometimes the big pharma needs to have these prices because of like innovation and clinical trials cost a lot and and all those sorts of things Mm -hmm. then i was looking um just basically doing i'll say research but it wasn't really research the podcast and this and that from people who are medical professionals and in 2009, I think uh, Pfizer settled for, I think I forgot what the drug was for, but basically mm-hmm. the drug like didn't work and they fudged the yep. data and this and that. And they paid a settlement of like, I want to say like some in the single digit billions, but they made double digit billions off it. Yep. And so for me, when I, not that I've ever particularly trusted that sort of big pharma type deal, Sure. But when people throw out the like, they need to have this price differential for innovation purposes, that kind of like, for example, when the Pfizer CEO was talking to uh, Lex, I was kind of like, yeah, that used to make sense to me. But after digging some more, Mm -hmm. obviously, I don't know the books of these companies and whatever, but that seems Mm -hmm. not very, um, I would say that seems like a convenient excuse Sure. To, yeah. to have things be expensive. 
And so I knew, like you just mentioned, the phase one clinical trial would cost about like twenty million dollars, which is a ton. Mm-hmm. But when you produce a drug that doesn't work, like you said, and you still come out like five billion dollars in profit, mm-hmm. like that doesn't really hold water. Not the cost of the clinical trial, but their reasoning that they need to charge more because of innovation. Like that, that doesn't hold water yeah, with sure. me anymore. So yeah. I guess kind of putting you on the hot seat a little bit with this, but w- what is sort of the, I guess, what are your thoughts on the whole subject? Because I, I know that was your opinion or that is, is, or was your, your opinion when we talked in episode one mm-hmm. uh, or episode one of this sort of you basically um, <laughs> not episode one of the whole podcast, obviously, but yeah. that was your opinion. Then have you given sort of, I don't, I don't know if you listened to that podcast or given sort of some of the recent events that, Mm-hmm. You being in the industry, I've, I don't, maybe, I don't really know. I feel, I feel like my question is kind of out there. I don't. No, it's fair. I mean, it's a good question. I, I think, um, so I think it in the realistic answer is it's, it's a mixture of a couple things, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, as we noted, clinical trials are really expensive sure. um, and most of the time they flop, right? Sure. So every you know, every, the 97% of clinical trials that don't get approved, they're just part of the world's most expensive junk heap, right? I mean, they're, they're a complete loss of anything. Mm -hmm. Um, So the 3% that do succeed have to pay for the 97% that don't. Um, But I, you know, I think it'd be naive to also say there's not an aspect of doing whatever the market will bear, right? Mm -hmm. And so in some cases you do have, you have an audience that or a, a market that, I mean, for better or for worse, sort of has to take it, right? I mean, what are they going to do? It's that or kick the bucket. Okay, yeah. then I'll then I'll make it work. Um, I also think there's a we've introduced a very strange wrinkle into the system with insurance companies, mm-hmm. you know, paying out, you know, sort of ludicrous amounts of some things and then not paying out to other things and modifying whatever healthcare decision you can make. Like, I think the pricing, that leads to bubbles, right? Like, the moment you sort of separate the consumer from the, the producer, I think bubbles start to form, right? Like, sure. there's, there's weird discrepancies in the pricing that develop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it, it's akin in some ways to, to, the, um, to college pricing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, once you, once you separate the, the student from the tuition, um, and just be able to just put the student on the hook, right? Like it's, you know, then, oh yeah, yeah. whatever you, whatever you need, it's that, that price. So like, FAFSA you know, and all that other stuff. Yeah. And so it does, and that has repercussions in like our hospital systems, right? I mean, a lot of them run shoestring budgets, right? It's, it's something we've kind of not dis- ironically not discussed in the last two years, which is that most ICUs are, you know, at 90% capacity, a large percent of the time. Like that's, you know, it, it's not profitable to have empty beds. So they run a tight ship. And so when you hit a scenario where you have a surge, you know, you try to build in things to, to accommodate that, but you weren't running with a large surplus before. Um, and then you, you know, if you, if you go to the hospital, right, there's this fun exercise where you ask them for a line by line breakdown. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't even really know what the pricing is. Right, like you kind of ask, and you're like, "Hey, what's that cost?" They're like, "I don't know. We got to talk to your insurance." Nobody knows until yeah. it's all all said and done. 
Um, and so I, I think it's both, right? I, I think, you know, pharmaceutical companies do, you know, they do have to make a profit. Otherwise they won't exist. I mean, it, you know, in, in my space, I'm in the venture capital, you know, I'm in a small biotech, right? If, if we can't get investors, our drugs don't get invented. That, yeah, that, you know. just a question was not really posed at the smaller ones, but more the the giant ones. Yeah. Um, and moving sort of more into the the philosophical, more, more abstract, I guess. And mm-hmm. what what is I've because I've thought a lot about about this issue because uh, you have systems in in Europe where you pay extra taxes and the government takes care of all of that, but then. Sometimes you run into efficiency problems and other times not. And sometimes people exaggerate those efficiency problems. And like, I have no way of really knowing mm-hmm. because it depends on where you look and who you ask and everyone will tell you something different. So like mm-hmm. you ask somebody who lives in Britain that had one bad experience with waiting for forever for some treatment, but then you go mm-hmm. to the next guy and it's like, Oh, I got it next week. And it was fine. It's like, it depends. Like there's no, this goes back to like the, I don't know thing so Mm -hmm. i feel like there's not really one right way of doing it and so Mm -hmm. that leads to people that have a very uh, i'll say intimate knowledge of how it works right these people on the pfizer boards that then go into the Mm -hmm. fda and then they swap roles and then it's like they're all just the same people that are just in this like merry-go-round of profit Mm -hmm. yep it's like what what can, what is I can't think of a tenable solution, which is really troublesome to me because I've spent a lot of time thinking about it, and I and I like to have sort of ideas on. I don't need solutions all the time, but like mm-hmm. this would seem to work, but I can't think of something that would even seem to work because there's every solution that I think of that's either been implemented before, or has been talked about. I can point to like that'll be a problem that'll be a problem that'll mm-hmm. be a problem and that will also be a huge problem in all of them yeah so i don't sure. what, like in your because you're in it what's like what sorts of and obviously don't have to throw anybody under the bus but like philosophically speaking what sort of is mm-hmm. like where is there ways to help the consumer whilst also encouraging innovation and and allowing these companies to remain in the, like a free market like what what sort of yeah. things where are we and where do where do we go from here a little bit? Yeah, I think it's tough. I mean, I, I do think you're right. I think whenever somebody pitches like, I have the solution, that's usually a good sign that they don't have the solution. Um, but I, I, I think it's complicated and it's complicated by the fact that these are dynamic systems that are in constant flux. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I think, I mean, um, I'm going to botch this quote. There's a great Thomas Sowell quote about there's not it's something like there's not choices there's only trade-offs yes right yeah, yeah. um and i think that's kind of what we're dealing with here right so you know if you want a highly efficient healthcare system that you know handles you know patient needs and responsiveness you know i, I think you're going to have some profit motive in there but probably not as much as exists today right i think that's probably you know you you could get you know, you don't have to, to, you can find really good mechanics and plumbers and, and other things that don't require, you know, excessive amounts of bureaucracy that, that drive up costs to just function. But on the flip side, um, I think that system where you, you cut a bunch of profit out is also not very innovative. It's not risk-taking. You know, you're, you're trying to balance these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in, in any given situation, you're going to need to lean one way or the other to, to correct. 
Sure. Um, so I, yeah, I'm with you. I, I don't know what the answer is. Um, I would, I would point to the fact that a large amount, the majority, I think it's the overwhelming amount of majority of um, biotechnology research occurs in the United States, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's where biotech companies function and develop. Um, and I think a lot of, a lot of the world benefits from that, right? So an experiment that you're, that does, that works here, a drug gets developed, it eventually comes off patent. There's a generic form and it, you know, it's sold around the world for, you know, it's $3 a pill and they charge you $5 a pill, right? Mm-hmm. But the backstory of that was a matter of innovation and development and invention um, that needed more of this dynamic in times wasteful process, right? Like that has, you know, the, like mm-hmm. I said, this 97% failure rate. Um, and, and I think too, I mean, I will say one thing is that by, by the pricing being so high, there's, there is a large incentive to get better than that 3%, right? Like I said, I mean, it kind of comes back to what we said at the beginning is if I could pick the winners at a better than one out of 30 rate, mm-hmm. right? I mean, not only do I benefit, I become you know, easily the richest person on the planet in several years. I mean, I, you know, Elon and and Jeff Bezos wouldn't have like diddly squat on me if I could do that. You'd be up in space every day. Right. But also on some levels, the consumers, you know, Mm -hmm. benefit, right? Because all of a sudden I'm sitting here going, yeah, do that, do that, do that. Don't do that. Um, And a bunch of drugs come to market faster. Right. So, so I, I, this, the, that's a long way of saying, I don't know. Yeah, you know, no, of but course. That it, it's a it's dynamic thing. Of, we're in agreement. I, I think for me, it's just like, surely we can do better, I guess, basically. Mm-hmm. Like everyone can look at what's going on with the insurance companies and everything else and be like, this is not set up in an optimal way for mm-hmm. people to exist. Well, and I think a lot of it is also sort of a slow creeping development Right. Like I, I think a lot of with the insurance, the, ins, the insurance situation um, and medicine has been a slow creep of like increasing rules and increasing paperwork and increasing bureaucracy that is always sort of pitched as a, we're trying to protect patients. And I think, you know, in, in, in their heart of hearts, they are trying to protect patients, but as it builds Mm-hmm. You know, it, it never goes, nobody ever goes, Hey, that rule didn't really work. Like we probably shouldn't have them file that form anymore. Right. Yeah, but like all of that takes stays. time and right. It just stays forever. Um, and it always builds in one direction. So, yeah. and, and I, again, I, I understand, you know, people would say, I think the steel man argument would be is if you start stripping away things, people are going to get hurt. Yeah, um, no, of course. Which is why it's tough because when you talk to the individuals that are in, in there, and they're like, they have good intentions usually. Mm-hmm. And the same with the doctors and the same with even like the researchers at the pharmaceutical companies. And even if you listen to the Pfizer CEO, like you can not believe him. He says he has good intentions, but if we're going to take mm-hmm. him at his word, they all have good intentions, but they're all sure. in this, like, you know, as the saying goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's difficult because you can't point there's not one person or one thing that you can point to to be like, okay, we'll just get a, we'll get rid of that. Right. And then it'll be all better. Right. And so that makes it difficult as well when everyone can recognize there's a problem 
Mm-hmm. But there's not, it's like, nope, not that. Like, that seems to be working kind of okay. Maybe that could be fixed a little bit. And then you kind of do research into why that thing is that way. And then you find out it is that way because somebody else in this other agency has this other rule that you have to follow for this and that. And then you Mm -hmm. go figure out, well, why do they have this? And then you go back to because somebody didn't follow the rule and a bunch of people died and you had like the Tuskegee experiment and all these horrible things that happened. So there's all, it's like this never ending cycle of stuff. And well, and it's really I think hard we're, to unwind it. Yeah, and and I think too, I think sometimes we engage in sort of these proxy intellectual wars, right? So we're going to pretend like what we're fighting about is healthcare, mm-hmm. but what we're really fighting about is sort of a deeper question. So, you know, if if I pitch the question to you this way, right? It it's mm-hmm. more of the like um it's the trolley problem, right? Of so course. do you want a system that saves 97% of people? you know, who have low grade issues, but the 3% who have serious issues, they're toast, right? Mm -hmm. They don't have a shot. Or do you want a system that can cover that 3%, right? So it has all the innovation and development to come up with these treatments for maybe a minority patient population, but Mm -hmm. it also means that it's expensive for everybody, right? So it's like that that 97% is going to pay and they're not going to get the best service because that's not where our folks are. Um, yeah. And that's more of a philosophy question than it a is. medical question. And it doesn't come out in practice because in practice, that's an impossible question to answer because you'd like the best of both worlds, but that doesn't really happen in that way. Right. And I think in, in Europe, it's easier for those sorts of countries to go with a 97% because it's a smaller, more homogeneous population who mm-hmm. kind of all try to look after each other and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then in the U S it's just such a boiling, well, to use the boiling pot. Right. Yeah. But in, it's just a clusterfuck of people basically. And so like mm-hmm. people are, and people are selfish generally and human nature is not the best thing in the world. Mm-hmm. And so that's why you can't really have the best of both worlds. Cause if everyone was motivated by the right things, we wouldn't be in this problem, mm-hmm. but you know, here we are. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, you make do with what you can, I guess. It's... Yeah. So it's tough. It's tough. And I would kind of, I don't even know. It's like, it's it's hard to even think about it. It's kind of like, not depressing, but mm-hmm. you kind of just run into this wall where you're like, well, I don't know anymore. I don't really know what to do, but here we are. <laughs> yeah. And and that's tough from a perspective of if you're just a regular person that wants to go vote for a party, like like a candidate or whatever, who feels a certain way about healthcare, mm-hmm. they like to go through this thought exercise and then to also end up in the same place where you're like, well, neither of them know either. Mm-hmm. You're kind of just like, you throw your hands up and then it's, it's a, it's super difficult. So I don't yeah. know. Well, don't so, know. so th- I mean, part of this too, but I mean, like you said, I mean, part of that feeling was one of the drives for me writing this book. Sure. Right? Was I was saying, about to say that it's helpful to get the information out there. So when people are like, oh, I don't know, you've kind of helped with ones with one, not to diminish what you've done, but one super mm-hmm. tiny aspect of, of this whole yeah. convoluted whirlwind of shit. And you've basically helped people translate it into English. Yeah. 
or well, you know, and, I don't and, know if it translated into Spanish or whatever as well. I mean, who knows? But well, anyways, to, depends to if normal, Amazon will help me. <laughs> to normal people talk. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's like you said, I mean, there's an aspect of this that's inside baseball, right? And, you know, it benefits patients to understand, right? And and to know what they're signing up for. And, and you know, for some patients here, the books, I mean, truth be told, the book's not going to help them, right? They're in a scenario where they're not going to qualify for a lot of these clinical trials, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and so for those patients, they might find themselves in a situation where they, their only option is a phase one trial. Mm-hmm. But a lot of patients, when they, when you look at, um, when you look at polling data, you know, and questionnaires, a lot of patients are willing, you know, they're good people, right? Like at, at the end of the day, they, they want to help, even if it's not going to help them, they want to help future people who are going to be in the state. And so they're willing to, they're willing to go into these kind of phase one trials um, with the hope that it leads to something, right? Like knowing that it's probably not going to benefit them, but maybe down the road. Um, And I, you know, my, my impetus here was just that those people deserve to understand that that's what they're signing up for. Um, And so, you know, like, again, there's parts of this that aren't really complicated. They're just not well known. Um, so like one, one of the stats I throw into this book, right, is that there are, as of, of um, I think it was December of 2020, there were more clinical trials recruiting cancer patients than Burger Kings in the United States. Mm, yeah, I remember you saying that. Right. Like there's a lot of them out there. Um, and that, you know, and then when people start to understand things, so like to, to dive into it a little bit, right? So like a phase one. So the way I pitch it in the book is that each of the phases is asking a slightly different question. So the phase one trial is asking, is this thing going, is it safe, right? So is this going to hurt anybody? So they're not even looking to see, not really, um, whether this is going to cure somebody's disease. They're looking for the right dose. So that they don't even know if they can give this to people yet um, and what dose will be tolerated. And so, you know, even from that, just knowing that it opens up a whole can of worms if you're signing up for a phase one, right? Because now, you know, I mean, the odds are you're going to get a dose that was either too low to be effective, right? Cause I'm looking for the dose. So I'm going to start by giving, you know, I'll give patient one a very, very, very low dose. Cause I don't want to hurt anybody, but right. like so low that I really don't think it's going to work, but I don't want to hurt anybody. So I'm going to give that one. And then if that goes, okay, I'm going to give the next person a little bit more. And then the next person a little bit more after that until I hit a point where somebody gets sick. Mm. Right. But the majority of patients in that, you know, in that development are going to end up not being dosed correctly. Right. Even if the drug does get approved, you didn't get it at the right dose. Um, And so, you know, like it's those kind of things where I'm like this, it's not a complicated idea, Mm -hmm. but it, if people knew that, I think then they would, they would have a better understanding of what, what they're signing up for, and whether they want to participate or not, and what kind of questions they want to ask about their participation. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move on from the depressing stuff. Um, so you've, <laughs> you've published this, self-published this through Amazon. Mm-hmm. How did that work? So it was super easy, actually. Um, I was hesitant at first, but from from the date of deciding that I was going to finish this and sit down and publish it. So when I, the day I had the manuscript done mm-hmm. to the first text I got that somebody had like a paperback copy in hand um, was under 
was like a Monday to Friday transition, right? So like I submitted the manuscript on Monday, there was a paperback in my parents' hands by Friday, um, which is insane. I mean, if you really think yeah. about it, that's nuts. Um, but it's really simple. And Amazon has a bunch of little one-minute videos about how to do it. So they'll, they'll walk you through every step of the way. Um, basically, you just need to be, you know, I'd say you need to be above average at Microsoft Word. Sure. And you can take it from there. Um, so there's, yeah, that's it. And the Kindle was even easier. I mean, the, the Kindle version was very straightforward. Um, that one, because the Kindle is a little different, right? Because it, it has reformatting and reflowable text. So mm-hmm. you on your Kindle can view the book in whatever font or size you want. Um, but in some ways, as, a, as an author, that makes it a lot easier because I don't have to decide how to lay it out. Yeah. <laughs> I'll let you no, do it. exactly. That makes sense for sure. It takes a little bit of a headache off your plate so uh, obviously they they will take a cut for mm-hmm. you selling it on their stuff but is it for for you is it worth that like is it a big cut half small cut what like yeah so on the kindle copy they take a 30 percent cut mm-hmm. um, and then on the paperback they take i don't remember what the percentage comes out to be i mean i think it's like I think it's like 60. Um, but, the, but part of that is the part of that's the printing cost, right? So, oh, of course, you know, the, the nice thing about Amazon is that they print on demand, right? So mm-hmm. I don't have like 50 boxes of these things in my basement that I'm hoping to get rid of. Um, yeah. You know, they'll, they'll print as people order it. I'm <laughs> so, that way with these shirts, please buy them. <laughs> yeah. Right. So that's a nice, that's a nice feature to it. Mm-hmm. Um and then they'll let you kind of play with the pricing. And then they also have, um, they also have advertising options. So I'm mm-hmm. playing with those now. I tried for like a week using the Kindle lock screen. That was a complete mm-hmm. flop. Um, <laughs> so now we've switched. We're switching gears. Now it's a, you know, a sponsored product campaign where it'll show up in people's searches as an Amazon-sponsored product. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it, they like, make it really easy. I feel like the first time you try an advertisement with a big platform like that it always flops like the first time i did i did one with like instagram and one with facebook and i got like two subscribers out of it and i was like well, <laughs> I, that was worthless yeah but it's like i don't like they'll tell you this many people saw it it's like you have no way of knowing if those people were like bots whatever yep. especially especially for social media but yeah that makes sense all right well you get a well, cut cool. through the kindle so if anyone is thinking of buying it buy it through the kindle <laughs> Well, to be fair, I priced them so I get the same cut either way. <laughs> oh, my... Never mind. Buy whichever one you want. <laughs> yeah, whichever one you want. Um, <laughs> but I will say the nice thing about the Amazon ads, if anybody's thinking of going that way, is I only pay Amazon if somebody clicks on the ad. Mm. So I don't. you don't pay per view. You pay per click. That's um, nice. Yeah. So at the very least, I only pay if somebody was interested enough to kind of check out the page. Well, that's um, fair enough. I feel like that's a good system. Yeah, right? can't guarantee a buy every time but at least they clicked on it and then maybe mm-hmm. somebody else was interested and you know never know well that's awesome yeah. everybody's interested i had um nolan gilbert who's the wild he's a wild and firefighter i had him on the podcast i think episode 31 maybe memory serves correctly he also just published self-published on amazon a poetry book collection of poetry um, oh, that's right he came out last week or the week before i think 
Nolan, I'm throwing you under the bus. He's supposed to be coming back on the podcast relatively soon. So <laughs> if you hear this and you haven't said yes yet, well, too bad. You're coming back now. <laughs> um, but yeah, so yeah, no, it's super interesting. It's, it's also really like I'm learning about all these things and I feel like people who are unrelated to each other are doing them at the same time, which is really weird, but yes, life. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of nuts. I mean, right. 20, what are we in at? 2022? Yeah. 2022 is insane, right? Like, I mean, if you told me 10 years ago that I could throw somebody a word document and they'd kick out a book four days later, right. Yeah, I would have told no, you you're, you're crazy. Yeah. That's you know, nuts. There's never been a better chance to like, you know, leverage these things into something unique rather than trying to just nine to five it all the time. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's it's really nice. I think the the remote working for the like for some people obviously it has been hard, but for people who have the drive to like do extra stuff, it's been so helpful. I know for for like you mm-hmm. to finish your book, for me, for even just to start the podcast and do the soccer stuff and mm-hmm. um, all these things. Like, if this didn't happen, I never would have done most of this and. Sometimes it's stressful because you got a lot more going on, but like mm-hmm. overall, it's more it's more worth it in my opinion. It's like I'm learning so much from talking to all these people. It's like I didn't know that, like using Nolan for instance, I didn't know that the federal wild and firefighters were called the hot shots, and then the <laughs> the people that jump out of planes are called the smoke shows or something. And every crew has their like cool nickname, and I was like, man, they should do that for other industries too, but, right? That's like, awesome. I would I would never have known any of those things at all. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, and, and you, you know, you, you're building an audience. I mean, yeah. Like I'm telling the, the podcaster entrepreneur, <laughs> how great it is to dig out there. Um, I, I don't know all 20 people that are listening to this is uh, who knows <laughs> you 20 people are my favorite. Oh, well, you heard it here first. You can go buy Chris's book, all 20 of you. <laughs> right but it's cool right i mean i even the like um yeah even the like so like uh, last last winter i bought like an oculus vr headset right mm-hmm. and um recently it's been sort of like because so then oculus got bought by facebook right, right. Of course. and they've been developing these like multiplayer games where, I mean, it's everything, you know, as a kid in the 90s, everything I ever wanted was to put on a headset and, like, play with my friends. And, like, now I'm kind of old and it's a little weird, but I can <laughs> afford it. So take that. Yeah, but, no, of course. It, you know, like, I, I'm, I'm astounded by the fact that I can throw on this headset and then, you know, some of my cousins who live out in Michigan, you know, I'm, like, seeing them in, you know, not in real life, but, like, you know, like, we're waving and, like, it's cool. It's so yeah. cool. The technology is insane. Like, I really am enjoying how these things develop and, and watching. I have no idea how, like, the metaverse thing is going to turn out. No idea. What's, oh, I don't God. even really understand it. Did you, but, did you see the initial ad for it? Or I like did. The, like, the, the creepy-looking <laughs> tiger with the penguin or whatever, and then these people yeah. just, like, look like they're on something. Yep, yep. It. It's so <laughs> weird. It's so yeah. weird. Well, oh, and you see the, the other day, the uh, the NBA let people watch from a VR room. I did see that. And then they turned a LeBron dunk into an NFT, 
which is a whole nother <laughs> subject to get into. Somebody bought it as well. That's like things are, and then I uh, think like the uh, things are happening, and like I don't uh-huh. think nobody really knows what they are. Um, yeah, but it's gonna be like probably an internet revolution part two mm-hmm. type deal. I like, I don't know. The VR stuff is kind of like. I don't know whether or not to resist it because it's creepy to me or yeah, to fair. like embrace it like, because everybody's going to be doing it. It's, it's like a weird one for me because like, <laughs> like people like there's no substitute for human to human interaction. Even mm-hmm. this, like I'd rather be in a room with you talking because it's easier yeah. to kind of go back and forth. And like, we've done this several times. So it's for, it's like a little bit easier for us. But like, if you meet somebody for the first time, like I'd so much rather do this in person, but I don't have yeah. like, the funds of Alex Friedman to go fly out to some city, book a hotel room and set up a whole studio in the hotel room for the day or like really fly people out to, uh, well, you know, <laughs> if that, if that happens, that would be amazing. And you know what you guys have to do to make that happen is freaking subscribe, please. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like it's just, there's no substitute for that. And it's like, it's cool. But if mm-hmm. people start living in those headset things, it's going to be, like I saw yeah. a video of somebody like walking around their house and they ran into the wall because yep. they didn't know where they were because they didn't set the bounds properly. It's like, what, like, we don't even know what social media is doing to us. Like how, like, and uh-huh. then we're giving our, our brains this VR thing where it's like, we're existing, but we're not. It's super weird to me. And I don't yeah. know. I hope I'm not the only one that's like kind of creeped out by that. No, but, I've I've had a couple moments where, especially so, I have this thing where every October I play like a horror game. Like that's my one of my traditions. Yeah, pretty much. But this was <laughs> the first year I did it in VR. Oh God! And that was terrifying. Um, I played The Walking Dead, uh-huh. which was great. But I remember I talked to my wife at one point and I said, I you know I I lived through the video games cause violence, like thing that in the 90s and then like a bunch of data came out it like wasn't true and like after playing that game for a while i was like we might need to revisit this discussion like it's a little different Mm -hmm. in in vr right because you're moving and you're like you're all of your sort of lizard brain things are getting triggered right you're hearing things behind you you're watching something come at you right in full form right and and now it's sort of like it's kind of blocky but even Mm -hmm like a blocky not fully rendered thing that'll change like in two years it'll be like hd right like you know so we're playing these games where i'm like i don't know like i come i've played games my whole life and never really been that amped up after playing anything but like i'll play something like that and, and like an hour later i'm like i have to like sit down and read a book for like half an hour to get my heart rate back down you know, because I yeah. like I I engaged in full on fight or flight mode, mm-hmm. right? I feel, and, like, I feel like that's not good, especially for. And you're a fairly stable person, not like, just yeah. like emotionally, you're like you're yeah. not so like up and down. You're fairly level, mm-hmm. so for you to have that reaction for me is kind of like, yeah, yeah I, I I do. I'm cons- either I'm becoming just an old man. Or there's something different here where I'm like, I'm concerned about this and kids and, you know, the ease of, I mean, it's the same issues, but taken to a new level, right? Like how easy mm-hmm. it is to buy something and, mm-hmm. you know, you buy your Farmville coins or whatever, you know, your Roblox or, you know, 
mm-hmm. and you suck kids into that. But add on to that a level of like getting accustomed to VR violence, and I, uh, you've got a really nasty mix. Yeah, I didn't even consider the violence thing. I just considered more like the people would just be more alone than they ever mm-hmm. had been before, like living off this like, oh, I've got this friend in my VR headset. And it's like, uh-huh. That's also not a great thing because then it's like, okay, well, there's so many potential sp- spinoffs of problems. Like, okay, where does school go from here? Are we going to do school uh-huh. in VR? Mm-hmm. Like, and if so... Are you going to teach the teachers to teach in VR? Because they struggled enough with just PowerPoints and Zoom. Right. Yeah. Which is not, which is no offense to any teachers, is not super complicated from a technology perspective. But mm-hmm. like, are we going to do that? And then what's that going to do to the kids? Are we just never going to see people in person again? Like, are we right. just only going to watch sports games from VR? Like, the NBA had their VR room. It's like, you can't replace the atmosphere at a soccer game or like a hockey game. Or like, you can't replace that. Right. Everyone's just sitting there with the goggles on. I don't know. Maybe I sound like the old yeah. person. I'm not even that old. <laughs> Get no, off but you're my right. lawn. <laughs> well, but like, you know, a lot of the developments that come out are trying to integrate things that way, right? I mean, I've seen a number of ads about working in a VR space and like, I nope. kind of go, oh, okay, whatever. But then, the, you know, then they came up with a Bluetooth link to your, your keyboard, right? And I was yeah. like, okay, now all of a sudden in VR, I can see my real life keyboard. Okay, yeah. now maybe there's something here I could do, you know, like, or you can plot your couch in VR. So, like, you're mixing, you know, now it's sort of more like an augmented reality thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't but, know. Yeah. It's going to be um, odd. The first thing that creeped me out, really creeped me out, was the was Alexa. Uh-huh. I like, yeah, no shot I'm getting that. And once I knew that existed, I was like, oh, we're going downhill fast. Because I knew, <laughs> like... The sciencey people just like love discovering stuff, mm-hmm. and so it's kind of like the train is the brakes have gone off the train, and they're just going now, and there's not really much turning <laughs> back. I think at, at this point, which is like, yeah. which is cool. Technology is amazing, but like, we don't know. Like I was, I think personally now, like when I was in high school, in middle school, I was annoyed that I didn't get a phone. Mm-hmm. when i was that age but now i'm very grateful that my parents did not let me have that when yeah. i was 12 13 14 mm-hmm. because for a while it messed me up even when i was like 17 18 like oh my god they didn't respond to me do they, do they not like me like uh, like these yeah. Sort of like yeah and growing up with that like when you're 12 it's like oh my god like i couldn't yeah. imagine doing that and so then it's like we don't know what that's going to do to brains and now we're twisting reality, which is like, that's not even hyperbolic anymore. It's like, that's what it is. It's like people even like when they grow up, they're not even going to know like what's real, what's not. Yeah. And that's, that's creepy to me. I don't really like that. No. And I, I, I find with my phone, I don't know. Do you find this? So I, I find that people in sort of our age brackets are okay with phones. We're not really good at them. Like we're, we're okay in terms of like, trying to manage our behavior around them but like Mm. the older generation i feel like just got slammed with i mean effectively a new form of cigarettes right like like my parents Mm. will pull out their phone while we're sitting here have this conversation and like fiddle around on it but like not like just check a quick text or like you know oh it buzzed let me see what that is like they'll full-on pull it out and start reading the news 
in the middle of a conversation. And you're like, if you really sat there and thought about it for a second, right? Like if you and I were just sitting here and all of a sudden I was like, cool. What? But like, <laughs> I just start reading my book. You'd be like, nice, what nice the, plug what's with wrong the book, with you? Dude. <laughs> Thank you. But right. Like you'd be like, what's wrong with you? Like the super mm-hmm. rude, yeah. uh, you know, I had to really work on that. Um, when Jen and I were first dating, because I have like, there was all these group chats for soccer teams and like this and that. And people were always like doing this. And like, I thought I was funny. So I would tweet something and then like, I'd be like, Oh, nobody yep. liked it. And I'd go check it. And Jen would be like, stop doing that. So I had to really work on that. I think I'm a, I'm a lot better now than I was. Um, Like as horrible as this is, as this is to say, like I can go, I use my phone now to, stay updated on like i'll listen to a podcast but i'm not checking it uh-huh so it's just on but i'm doing other things and so mm-hmm. i do that and maybe that's not really good either but like it's better than in my well i don't know but i don't i don't feel the need to check it all the time now yeah like i no, know if good. i'm supposed to get a text it's tough because for the soccer training thing if you have like a parent that like hey my yeah. kid's sick today like i gotta be like know where it is kind of yeah so i've i've kind of had that balance i think but yeah i, I had to work really hard to do that um I don't yeah know. well and do you find i always i find that it's almost a compulsion mm-hmm. right like i'm I'm not enjoying it sometimes right like when i'm sitting there like flip, i'm really tired i'm flipping through my phone and then i like mm-hmm. wake up and i'm like I, i'm not even having fun with this like why mm-hmm. am i doing this? it's not it used to be like that more for me. Then I deleted Facebook and Twitter off my phone. It's a good move. And I have the tabs open in Safari, mm-hmm. but it's when I go to check something about the way that they work in the browser versus the app, mm-hmm. it's like the scrolling is not as concise. And so yeah. like it makes it more like, it's a lot easier for me to be like, oh, that's stupid and get off. Like I don't spend, like I used, I used to spend like an, in like an insane amount of time on Twitter. It was horrible. Yeah. You kind of naturally derail now. It, easily. Like sometimes I'll open it just mm-hmm. like for like to check the podcast and then I'll go to my personal one and I'll check it to see like soccer transfer news. And then mm-hmm. as soon as I see somebody tweet, like <laughs> Joe Rogan took horse deal and run my come out. Cause it'll just, cause it'll just <laughs> piss me off. Yeah. No, the comments are like, kind of fun to watch on those those kind of things. Nah, I, yeah, sometimes I'll do that. But then when the first comment is like, Rogan is alt-right, I'm like, okay, no, I'm done. Like, <laughs> You're like, oh, okay. Anything, anything like that where I'm like, this is going to annoy me. I have an awareness now that is going to annoy me, and I turn it off. Uh-huh. Instead, yeah. of, instead of seeing to see if the person replied to that one and got them. Right, I used yeah. To, I used to do that. Yeah. And now but you're I, right. Like it's not healthy, right? Like you're no. now you're just annoyed at some random person on the internet who might be a bot. You don't even know. It is. Also, speaking of bots, I heard this from Rogan's podcast, and I did some googling. I don't know the exact numbers, but like the top like Facebook group pages, mm-hmm. I think like ninety percent of the the top big like Christian pages are run by like Russian troll farms out of Macedonia next to Greece. <laughs> yeah. Like so, I bet. I'm going to take two big bets right now. I'm going to bet that my mom is not going to watch this. And I'm going to bet that <laughs> the Facebook groups that she's a part of are run by the Russians. <laughs> so, so if she is listening, well, yeah. don't come yelling at me. Google it yourself. But 
<laughs> but yeah, like it's just like because I love my mother, but sometimes she posts things where I'm like, why would you do that? Like, why would you engage with that material when I know you're going to be annoyed because my mm-hmm. brother is texting me, don't come in yet. Mom's annoyed at Facebook. Like, <laughs> no, but right. It's, it's true. Right. Like, and so then, you know, if you were to ask her in a somehow in a not emotionally charged way, right. Like I said, it's the same thing we were saying about ourselves. Are you having fun? Like, is, no, are you enjoying this? Mm-hmm. You know, like, what are you, what are you doing? You're wasting your life doing something you hate. Yeah. Well, the other side to that coin is you feel like some part of me feels like, I don't know, I'll go into this occasionally, like where I feel that people close to me, like I want to inform them of things that are going on in the world. Mm-hmm. And I feel that not necessarily that it's, my, that it's my responsibility, but somebody will say something like the Rittenhouse case was a really easy example. I did this with, I talked to a couple of people about this where I, so they would post something and I'd be like, that's just not true. Like mm-hmm. not only, it's not even an opinion. It's just untrue. Yeah. I'd be like, Hey, did you know that this and this happened? And it's like, as I'm texting this, I know that I'm going to put myself in a situation where I'm likely to get annoyed. But yeah. I feel that since it's my close friend, I should like do that. I don't know. So they're it's like, that's, tough, that's yeah, the flip side. Balance. And I, I feel yeah. like I'll say this and then mom will stop talking about you. But I feel like mom, my mom is more on that side of, of the mm-hmm. coin. Um, but not that it makes it any better really, but. No, but I mean, tough. you know, you could go the other way, right? Like it's, mm-hmm. it's the same sort of thing where you're going, I don't know why you're following. Why, you know, why are you, mm-hmm. why are you checking the COVID numbers every day? Yeah. It doesn't make you happy. It's not actionable information. You're no, being tied you in. Because right. you don't even know if it's true or not. That's the other thing as well. You don't even know. It's like, are they counting deaths of COVID? Deaths with COVID? Deaths right. Like, like, you don't know what they're counting. And to her credit, she, my mom doesn't do that as much anymore, at least that I've seen. But also, I stopped going on Facebook, so I don't really know. Mm, yeah. um, but like, you don't know if it's true or not. And it's so hard to verify because people will sneak words in like... Um, when people are talking about Rogan, I use Rogan as the example because it's just the easiest one. They'll put in like, and Russell Brand pointed this out with the headline. It was like controversial podcast host Rogan. They add controversial uh-huh. into the headline to make you yeah. already, your brain already go like, mm-hmm. oh, he did something dumb. Uh-huh. And you read it and it's just like, oh, he took like, he did this, this and this for COVID. And it's like, why did you have to say that I was controversial? Or like right. any any sort of example, every thing you read has that sort of charge and it goes back to the vr set like thing where like nobody knows what's real anymore and that's mm-hmm. concerning because it's not just the vr stuff it's what is actually happening in the world because you're just getting fire hosed with information yeah that you have no way of sifting through it's like i have no way of knowing any of this and then people say yeah. well trust the experts and it's like well the experts just lied to me so like, i don't really know right, right. Yeah, no, it's true. And I mean, it's an interesting discussion. So I, um, so especially like, so I've, I have two kids, right. Mm-hmm. You know, going on three, potentially any moment. Here. Um, and you're recording but, a podcast. What a, what a guy, right? Yeah. It's I'll, I'll be down here all night on the couch, but 
for world XP, I make it happen. Ah, oh, appreciate it. <laughs> um, but you know, like when you're when you're thinking about kids, right? I mean, I think about this a lot. Like, what do I teach them? How do I teach them to notice these things and to deal with it? Right? Like, I don't think it's going away. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any version where sort of this narrative-driven no, definitely, definitely reporting not. goes away. It, you know, and so what do you teach them? Right? Like, a, I mean, and the best I've come up with so far is to kind of put pretest prob- probabilities on things and start to, I mean, my, my focus for, at least for the kids has been to try and teach them to notice when their emotions are getting triggered mm-hmm. and have that be a red flag, right? Like that's what, what, you know, when they, when you read something and it makes you angry, mm-hmm. that should be a red flag, right? Of like, wait a second, slow down. Why, like, why do I feel this way? Right? Like somebody mm-hmm. is manipulating my lizard brain here. And, you know, that to at least get the question of like, why, what, you know, what are you trying to get out of me for this? You know, and it, again, it's, it's interesting because we would all agree. I mean, this is the, it's the used car lot sales tactic of mm-hmm. pressure and waiting and, you know, developing these threats and good cop, bad cop, like all of these sort of sales tactics are being employed. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're doing it with a weird veneer that I think lets people let things slide. You know, I, I saw somebody, somebody had, I don't remember. I feel bad not accrediting this to the right person, but somebody had pointed out that a lot of, I mean, even in the last two years, a lot of our decisions have not been science. They've been policy and that's mm-hmm. a different beast, right? Like, you know, if, if we take it out of that charged arena and just go into like a I car example, Dr. Malone, it might, yeah, it might've been Dr. Malone. So like, when you take it to a car example, right? So my wife is, you know, just about nine months pregnant, right? So we're whatever we're, we're out walking down the street and our car starts to act funny, right? And there happens to be a mechanic walking down the road and she goes into labor, right? And I go to the mechanic and I say, what do I do? Like, can this car drive to the hospital? You know, the question I've pitched to the mechanic is whether or not the car can drive, but they can answer it one of two ways, right? The car can or can't drive or you should or shouldn't drive the car, but those are two different answers, Mm -hmm. right? One is making a risk assessment for me Mm-hmm. And one is assessing the functionality of the car, yeah. you know, so they might, and when you conflate the two, you get into trouble. Right. But, but it does give people a veneer to be like, well, the expert said that and you're like, well, the, but the expert's not qualified to tell me how important it is that I get to the hospital right now. Mm-hmm. Right. Like they're, they're, they can tell me whether this car is going to function or not, but they can't tell me how important it is for me to roll the dice to get from A to B at this particular moment in my life. Right. Um, but they can, you can conflate those two. And I think that is, that's an interesting phenomenon going on now of being like, well, the experts said X, Y, or Z. Yeah. Like, well, and that is not actually aimed at anyone in particular. It goes for all of these sort of thing, even like different, um, like military people who have different thoughts on Afghanistan and this and that, sure. like all sorts of things is not aimed at one particular thing before all no, 20, no, no. All 20 of you get annoyed at me. Um, <laughs> well, it's, it's the Jonathan Haidt thing, right? It's the, yeah. it's, it's freedom versus, you know, it's, I don't remember all his splits, but it's a philosophical difference of, you know, freedom versus respecting authority or, mm-hmm. you know, tradition versus innovation, right? Like there are mm-hmm. philosophical issues, not that are, that are manifesting as something else. Yeah. And it's important to, I try to do that a lot when I ask questions of people that I don't 
who have an area of expertise that I need to make a decision in, but I don't have the information. I try and all phrase them as like information specific questions. So then I can make the decision. I try to, I try to avoid asking people what they think I should or shouldn't do because Mm -hmm. it gets into like, we were talking about earlier, like with the doctor who doesn't know which clinical trial you should do. It's like, mm-hmm. just, I try and phrase it in such a way because people want to help you decide what to do often. And mm-hmm. they're like, and they mean, well, it's not like they're trying to trick you into doing it. They're yeah. like, oh, in my opinion, you should do this. And like, they're, they want to offer their opinion and that's totally fine. But I try and make sure that I ask it and like, okay, what will happen if I do this? And what will mm-hmm. happen if I do that? That's yeah. it. Right. Don't tell me which one you would rather do. And it, and it's manifesting itself for me with this injury that I have. Mm-hmm. It's like, what will happen if I play? And what will happen if I don't play? And occasionally I'll be, people will be like, oh, you should or shouldn't play. And sometimes mm-hmm. I'll listen. But oftentimes I know what I'm feeling better than that guy that told me that I should or shouldn't play. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I phrase it. It's like, okay, I'm feeling this pain. What does this mean? Feeling that pain, what does that mean? How far can I push this? Basically, mm-hmm. is like, okay. And so today, they're like, well, if the pain goes to a four, it's probably a bad sign. It's like, okay, that's the information I needed. Then maybe do I rest tomorrow? Like, I mm-hmm. will make that decision then afterwards. Right. So it's difficult because you kind of got to back yourself, you know? And yes. Be confident in your own decision. And that's a whole yes. different situation that, to deal with as well. Because mm-hmm. I know in some situations I'm not confident in that decision and I would like somebody to tell me what to do. So it's yeah. like, it's a two side. Everything is like a whirlwind of if this, then that, that never yep. ends. Well, and, and part of that too, I think. So part of that is something we, I discussed in the book too with, with patients, right? Is that there's this thing, I don't, I, to the best of my knowledge, this probably has another name, but I call it unintentional doublespeak. And it's a scenario where you and I are using the same word, but we're applying two different meanings to it. Mm -hmm. Right. And we like, we slide past each other without anybody noticing. Right. So like, Mm -hmm. you know, like in your example, right. It would be me instead of saying, if the pain's a four, it would be, well, you know, if the pain's kind of moderate then maybe go forward. Right. So in your head, you're like, well, you know, I'm super tough. Right. So Mm -hmm. pain tolerance um, as well. It leads to different things. Right. And like, you know, and so my advice gets kind of filtered through your perception. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, like it's something patients run into a lot too, with like interacting with their doctor where they say, you know, I did, I think you're going to do well on this therapy. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you go, well, you know, if you take a step back and go, you ask them later, what does the doctor say? Oh, they think I'll do well. And you go, well, like, what, what does, does that well mean? mean? Yeah. Yeah. And it, it could go a lot of ways, right? Like, does that mean, you'll live a long time. Does it mean your disease will be static? Does it mean you'll be cured? Does it mean the side effects won't be too bad? You know, like there's a whole list of clarifying questions that need to be kind of addressed. And like you said, it's a weird, it's a weird spot where you, you sort of have to be your own advocate of like, well, and attempt to extract values, judgments from raw information. Right. That, that one's tough too, because somebody, can give you a whole spiel about something. You have to like pick and choose which one mm-hmm. is relevant, what's not relevant, what is their opinion, what is the fact. Like, 
all mm-hmm. sorts of things. And like Jordan Peterson always says all the time, he's like, well, that's complicated. It's like, you don't really like, we've spent like four minutes on this topic in particular, and we've gotten nowhere other than maybe laying out the ground rules to potentially discuss a solution. Mm-hmm. And that's part of human kind of existence in a all every decision you make, if you really boil it down, you can, ha- you can go through this thought exercise with almost every single decision you make. We don't think about it because like mm-hmm. a lot of them are simple decisions. Like, all right, I'm making eggs this morning. Do I want two or three eggs? And just like, all right, screw it. I'll just put the third one in there. Like we don't think mm-hmm. about it, but you can do this thought experiment with every single, almost every single decision you make. And then that gets weird because then you get wrapped into the loophole where you don't actually do anything. And right. which is also unproductive. Yep. So ah, this was, ah. it's complicated. Yes, thank you, Dr. <laughs> Pearson. It's very complicated. I think one of the funniest <laughs> things he ever said was like, he was on, you know who Andrew Schultz is? No. He's a comedian who has this podcast called Flagrant 2. <laughs> Jordan Peterson went on his podcast and Andrew Schultz was basically like, oh, I'm not important. Like, I just make dick jokes. And Peterson was like, well, that's important because of like this, like all these <laughs> things, because he understood like, Oh, uh, I don't know. It's complicated. The guy's a, I mean, he's a deep thinker, right? Like, I mean, he, he, he is, he's a unique figure. I feel like in that he's a deep thinker, but also he's pretty good about crystallizing his thoughts mm-hmm. in a way that's approachable. Like there's, there's deep thinkers where you're like, I, whatever you said was very profound. I have no idea what it was, but <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> yeah. you know, and then there's other ones where you're like, Oh, yeah, like, I mean, this is my thing with Thomas Sowell, right? Where I'm like, you're really smart. And also, when I read what you've written, you're crystal clear mm-hmm. in your in your meaning, mm-hmm. um, which is rare. <laughs> yeah. Well, it takes another level of intelligence to be able to articulate those thoughts into, like, uh, was it Albert Einstein? It was like, if you can't explain it to a fifth grader, then you don't actually understand it. Yes. It's like, that's a thing as well like to have such a deep grasp of whatever you're talking about to be able to mm-hmm. articulate those, those thoughts into something like into something that somebody that has no idea what you're talking about can understand mm-hmm. is another gift in it, like in itself. Yeah. So I don't know. It is, that's weird. And then the other phenomenon with that is like, when you go through these thought exercises, like you can tell that something is good happening. Like we're both going to leave this. Well, I am anyways, with like a good feeling. Like I learned something today. <laughs> Yeah. Which is important for that human to human interaction that we were talking about earlier. It's like you need you need that. It's like you can't just get that from putting a headset on and mm-hmm. like waving at your you're like, oh that's cool, but then like after that that's it. I guess yeah. there's something more profound going on. Yeah. Well and I, I enjoy the like the the you know camaraderie of intellectual exploration, right? Mm-hmm. I mean it's it's not what there's a time and place, right? I enjoy my video games where I'm whatever. Of course. You know? But it, it's not, like you said, it's not the same thing. It's not attempting to think out, you know, like think into to sort of deeper thoughts and dive into more, you know, more values and philo- philosophy and sort of understanding how things go, you know, like trying to really kind of consciously dig into these topics as opposed mm-hmm. to just sort of go to your, you know, your set of sound bite responses to stuff which you know everybody has I'm like oh okay whatever you know yeah well that's one of the reasons why i stay off social media now because like all the conversations when you boil them down like when you boil them down it's all it's the same like 
it's like insert issue insert mm -hmm. left insert right and then and like that's the entire conversation just back and yeah. forth over and over and over again and it's not, it's dumb to me now which is why i don't bother yeah. looking at it um Matt there's a great quote from Matt Taibbi where he says like, it doesn't make any sense that I can, but like, this is how it works, which is if I know your position on like random topic yeah. S, I can guess it on another one, but they're total, yeah. like they don't make sense. Like there's mm -hmm. no rhyme or reason that your position on abortion should match to your position on, I don't know, foreign you know, policy foreign policy or something, right? Like that, your, yeah, your feelings on Israel and abortion, like why, why is this link here? It doesn't make sense, right? It doesn't. Like, but it, it, you know, it's given to you as as a set of ideas, but they they're not really linked when you dig into them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it, and that's one of the again another one of the reasons why I stayed off because like why I'm staying off is because I would clash with everyone because mm -hmm. I I don't have the if you guess my position A then you know my position Z because. I compartmentalize each thing and I think mm -hmm. about each thing in its own way. And I try to like, make sure I fully understand an issue on it. And if I mm -hmm. don't understand an issue, I'll say, I don't know enough. I don't have an opinion yet. And that also annoys people because they think <laughs> that you should have an opinion. It's yeah. like, I'm in like this whole weird world. So I'm just like, like yeah. kind of like fucked off from it, from social media. <laughs> yeah, like, but it's a better know. place to be. It's, yeah. it's better, you know, but it's also not, in some ways, because then I get stuck in my own thoughts and that's sometimes also not fun because I end up in those thought exercise loopholes where I'm like, there's no end. And then I just turn on FIFA and, <laughs> and I just turn on FIFA and run away from my thoughts. That's there you go. Maybe, maybe not helpful either, but yeah, who, who knows? That's future so, use problem. Uh, yeah. Well, future me is going to have a lot of problems with VR. That's for sure. <laughs> Fair. Fair. But speaking of shoals and comedy, one of the other things I wanted to run by you, this also goes with the human nature problem, is I've been on this binge. Um, I know you know what Kill Tony is now because we talked beforehand about it. But basically, mm -hmm. for those listening that don't know what it is, uh, Tony Hinchcliffe is this comedian. Um, him and Brian Redband, another comedian, they, have, they host a show weekly where they get set up in a theater, a comedy club, and they've got their table and the band behind them. And then People go basically put their name in a hat, and if they get picked, they get to do a minute of stand-up uninterrupted, and then they talk with Tony and Brian and whoever the guest is. They've had, like, Mark Norman, Shane Gillis, Rogan's been a guest on there. Um, who else? Uh, like, tons of, like, tons of people have been guests on there, like, famous comedians. And it's really interesting to me because and they also have their like regulars so that like they'll have like two or three guys go every single week because they've mm -hmm. kind of like proven they've they've graduated from being open micers into like they're kind of doing this as their thing that like they're right on the cusp of like they don't have a lot of money but they're making enough to where like they don't necessarily need another job they're like right yeah. on the bubble so like one guy's living out of his van but he's like I don't know. He's, he's, he's a weird guy. But a lot of these people that I've noticed are super weird and like have, like if you met them, like it makes sense for a comedy scene. But if you met them like at the grocery store, you'd be like, what the hell are you doing with your life? <laughs> and so what I was thinking about is like, are these people aware? Like some people have self-awareness. Other people don't. 
Like, are these people, do they think they're going to go kill for a minute with these famous comedians, like, behind them? Or do, like, they think they're going to bomb and they know they're going to bomb? Or do they actually want to try? Or, like, if they have some weird quirk, like, do they know? Like, do, like are people laughing at them or with them? It's this whole weird, like, sort of, as Jordan Peterson would call it, it's, like, on the periphery of, like, human, like, the artists are, like, on the periphery of, like, human sort of uh consciousness yeah. because it's like they live in this weird world where they push the boundaries of things that are socially acceptable and aren't but i don't know it's very strange to me so the example i use is there one of the regulars who was a regular he had lou gehrig's disease and he go on every week and he would slay dude was hilarious <laughs> but it was like some of his jokes i was like are we laughing at him or with him like there was one time he was one of his jokes was he was mad at deaf people at the Paralympics because they got all the, because they got all the special needs pussy was, was the joke. And I was like, <laughs> like, I was like, well, so this is funny because this guy made the joke, but like, are we laughing because he, you had to speed up the video times two to understand what he was saying? Like, what is going on here? And like, I can't figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. I, I, in that kind of scenario, like, I don't, my impulse is to laugh because it's funny, but then there's another part of me going, probably shouldn't laugh at that. (laughs) And I, and then, like you said, for the, for the entertainer, do they, I mean, I I do think, you know, kind of listening to some interviews with comedians, a lot of them know that they're in that space and they're okay with it. The famous ones do like the famous ones do, but like the people that are doing this, like these open like one minute sets, like, do they know? It's like, I feel like some of them don't know. Right. 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 And I, and I don't know how you, you know, how do you thread that needle of being like, of being the joke and also attempting to gain sort of respect and develop a career out of being the joke, you know, like, is there a balancing act there between, yeah, it's a very interesting, comedians are very interesting people. Like they, I I don't, I don't. There's definitely, there's definitely, you have to balance it because you know, like you and I, if we're going to watch something and some guy just runs on stage and he says like, I'm depressed. It's like, all right, that's not funny. But if some other guy like sets it up in a little bit of a nicer way, like we'll laugh. Yeah. And that's a very weird thing because what they're saying when you're talking about taking tidbits of information, like picking out what's fact and what's not, Mm -hmm. that both of those boil down to the comedian says they're depressed. Right. But there's a right. way, but like, so there's a way that one says it, whereas like, that's funny, but it's not just the way that they say it. It's everything about them. Mm-hmm. It's like the tone of voice, the cadence, the delivery, what they look yeah. like, all of these things go into it. And it's just very, it's like very strange for me because somebody will say like, okay, this guy made this joke and it was funny. I'm going to make a similar joke. Like obviously it's against like, code or whatever to steal jokes but mm-hmm. like this sort of subject material can be funny i'm gonna try to do that and then it's, they bomb and it's like right then what right like and did they did they intentionally like is is the bombing part of the joke yeah for some of the open micers it might be i don't know yeah i don't know i mean we sort of touched on this earlier where there's there's a personality type that's willing to like go 
for it, mm-hmm. but um, it's uncomfortable, right? So I, oh, I do super. think there's like, there's a level of, of sort of filter for somebody who will just get out there and go, yeah, sure. I'll talk on the stage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like there's a, a lot of people will just go, no, I'm not doing that. That's yeah, it's not. No, it's weird. And I, I don't, I wouldn't do it either. I'm pseudo doing it now. Mm-hmm. And that was a big thing for me to like, get it. I was like, okay, I have these opinions. Well, like they're not perfect, but I'm going to put them out there mm-hmm. on the internet, but I don't have to like deal with the rejection of like, there's a hundred people that think that I am not funny at all. Yeah. It's like, that is hard. Yeah. To deal with. yeah. Yeah. Like you said, you're doing it face to face, right? Like they're, mm-hmm. they're expressing that they don't think you're funny mm-hmm. in real time. <laughs> for, yeah. Like, it's like, and then it's like, what do you do with that? It's like, so the, the ones that are self-aware, does that like shatter their world view or does it not? Because they know that bombing is a part of going up through the ranks. And then the same question for the ones that aren't self-aware. It's like, did they think they were funny and they're delusional? And now this shatters their worldview because they're not actually funny. And then right. what, like, what, like, it's just like, obviously we're not going to get through all this, but it's just very odd it's like the space is very odd but i enjoy it immensely mm-hmm. well it's complicated <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't no, know but I, yeah it, it's i do find comedians fascinating because they they have a unique mixture of like you said sort of internalized depression and also an extroverted nature in the sense of wanting to share it with the world mm-hmm but all like, and then there's the third aspect, which is the world kind of wants to hear about it. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, we all have those friends who are like, okay, here goes so-and-so here's Eeyore complaining again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they're not funny and you kind of wish they'd go away. Yeah. But yeah, if you had a comedian friend, like you said, it would be, they somehow touch on an aspect of everyday life that in, like you said, in a way that frames things up, but also I think kind of, yeah. I don't know. It's a weird mix. I, there's this great Bill Burr bit that I always, that I think of a lot as a parent, mm-hmm. which is um, he says something like, you know, it's never the big things that make me commit, that make me want to consider suicide, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's not like the big life changing things. Mm-hmm. It's the little things, right? Like it's, it's, you know, that my, like that all of a sudden I, my coffee spilled on my car and I go, you know, if I just yank this wheel to the right, I could just end it right now. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and I'm like, you know, the funny thing is he's right. <laughs> like it's at least in my head, I'm like, it's never the big things. Like, mm-hmm. so I'm never seriously contemplating it, no, but there's an aspect of me when like something goes wrong where I'm like, ah, something just so end just it. minute and inconvenient. <laughs> right. Like yeah. somehow they, they've cued into that aspect of psychology where I'm like, it's totally irrational. It doesn't make sense, but yeah, no, he's right. I do think that where I'm like, I stub my toe and I'm like, I'll just, that's it. I'll just step out into traffic. It's enough. And for him specifically, the delivery, the Boston accent makes it all better. Uh It just makes it work. Yeah. Like that's his, that's his, like, that's his vibe. That's his thing. Like being kind of angry. Or the same thing with like, they touch on these like, everybody's thinking it, but nobody says it type thing. Uh-huh. Like another Bill Burr bit is like, he's like, you're telling me there's no reason to hit a woman, not one. And then he goes to, and then he goes <laughs> to this whole, one. like this whole spiel of like, I, for, I forgot exactly what it was, but like when he says it, he's, when he says it, the crowd is kind of like, 
oh but then they're all laughing it's like you know you know it's like you shouldn't do that right and people say there's no reason to do it but also lol (laughs) so it's (laughs) so weird it's so weird in an interesting way i mean i I like following comedians because i think they kind of in some ways they cut through what we were talking about earlier Mm-hmm. But like they've somehow managed to land on the magic formula of being like, you know what you think is ridiculous, right? And then in the mm-hmm. back of your head, you're like, oh, yeah, no, he's right. It is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, it, I mean, there's always people who can't take a joke, but I feel like a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, no, okay, you're right. That's <laughs> yeah. These shouldn't be connected, but they are. Um, yeah, they do such a good job with it as well. And that's one of the things where like, uh, like the open micers – struggle with that art form a little bit mm-hmm. because the first couple times listening to it i was like skipped through some of the really bad ones because i was like oh i don't want to deal with this uncomfortable the uncomfortable situation yeah. but yeah. then i was like no i'm gonna make myself do it as like a exercise and see what goes on and some of them had like good premises to the jokes yeah but like but the delivery was off or mm-hmm. Like something was just off and nobody laughed, but I was like, yeah, that wasn't funny. But also if he had done maybe this with it, that could have been funny. Like I could see how this could be funny. Yeah. And a later one. And that's a weird one as well, because they've got the the really good ones. Like the, the really good joke writers have this way of sifting through like, you know, that word didn't work there, but this one will. Mm-hmm. And they have to do a lot of that working out at comedy clubs, which is why I've been like it's been kind of recently I've been on like, I need to go to one just to see, like, just to see like what goes on. And then the other part of it is like, why do I do this with everything? Need to know how everything works instead of just enjoying it. And that's another, that's another weird, weird thing, rabbit hole to go down. But yeah, I like, I don't know. Cause I saw Mark Norman, he, he posted, some of them are posting more, of the working out. So Mark Norman was in New Jersey working some stuff out and you saw him with the notepad up there mm-hmm. and he would post like the build up and then just not the punchline because he doesn't yeah. want people like his jokes to be out there before a special or whatever. Sure. He, but like they're willing to share that. And that's really cool because they show themselves bombing on jokes and then how to, how they recover from it, like how they deal with hecklers. And then yeah, you've never seen like, a compilation of like comedian roasts heckler it's yes like just something yeah. different in their brain like uh-huh with andrew Scholes. like andrew Scholes released a special that was 30 minutes of crowd work <laughs> it's like and it was good that's the things like yeah they're just their brains just are wired different yeah i wonder if that kind of ties into what you said earlier though where it's if you're a little bit if your brain is working a little bit outside the normal bounds so much so that you're not, it's unclear whether you know that bombing is part of the process or knew that you were going to bomb, right? Like if your mm-hmm. senses aren't clued in, does mm-hmm. that give you an interesting out of the box perspective, right? Like, cause you're not in the box with the rest of us. The rest mm-hmm. of us knew you were going to bomb, mm-hmm. but you can now see things that we wouldn't see because we're in the box and you're outside it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That actually happened on Kill, one of the episodes of Kill Tony. This guy went up. It was the first time ever doing comedy, and his parents were there. So Tony brought oh the parents on stage, and he was like, "It was like he was like something tells me that you guys think that you have a better sixty seconds than your son. Like, but between the two of you, you could put together a better set than your kid." 
And so he brings him up on stage and he brings his dad the, the mic. And his dad, the first joke, he was like, we always knew he was a little bit odd. And he killed. The whole crowd went nuts. <laughs> and it's like, that's not like, that's not really, that's a different situation of being funny because it was, he was able to play off the other yeah. guy rather than write the joke. Yes. Like, I feel like I can play off other things and be funny from time to time. But like, I don't think I can't write a joke out. And yeah. like, I don't have the guts to go on stage and do it. Right. Another weird thing, but it's another weird thing to when, once you get past the writing, the joke stuff, then you are able to just go do crowd work because people know who you are. Yeah. And then once you, it's like you bounce off people as like easier to do stuff. So like when the famous guys are roasting the newcomers, it's like super easy. It's like, LOL, that's funny. Yeah. Like, but like they, they, that one, that one was a layup. It's like, ah, oh, I don't right. know. Yeah. So then he had, um, what did the dad? Uh, I forgot what it was. Oh yeah. So then after the dad goes like, "Yeah, I thought he was gonna bomb, but he didn't do too bad." Like he had one funny <laughs> joke, but it's like everybody knows that they're gonna bomb, but they don't know, or they do, yeah. and they do it anyways, which is also kind of scary. Right. Yeah. I mean, it is part of the process, right? Is is I, I'm at, of of anything, right? You kind of go. In, I think there's only there's only so much planning you can do, and at some point mm-hmm. you got to jump in and it's going to be ugly the first time yeah. <laughs> you just, you know, you try to get better at it, but I do think a lot of people are afraid. Like they're afraid of the mistakes. They'll make. I mean, I'm afraid of them. I know I feel it when I jump out there and, oh, you know, of course. you know, but it, on the, on the other hand, you got to be like, well, it's either that or just be in the background forever. Yeah, yeah exactly. I'm not necessarily afraid of making mistakes, but I am make, afraid of making mistakes in front of 150 people. Sure. Yeah. Public, right. Publicly, and then it'll go on YouTube as "Ah, this guy bombed," and then you're famous for being bad. It's like that's right. not fun either. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, we went on a in the office the other day. We went on like a binge of like of YouTube videos. I mean, that were like basically fail compilations, right? Like mm-hmm. it was the the grape stomping lady, that, right? Like, I mean, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. This lady's famous for falling out of stomping grapes and sounding like a seal. Because it's clear she'd never had the wind knocked out of her before. And yeah. in her case, she, the first time it ever happened was on live TV. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, yeah. So, I, yeah, I'm, I'm afraid of those things happening. But, you know, you just go out there and give it a shot, I suppose. I, I give yeah. those people a lot of credit, but I do also yeah. laugh at their misery. It's a, no, it's of course. Little... I think they also do that as well, which is, yeah. I don't know, makes me appreciate the good ones a little bit more, I think. Um, I, I like watching the process. Like I, I enjoy people who let us into that, to seeing it develop. Yeah. Like it's, it's kind of like, I like the, the finished product, right? I love a good Netflix special, Yeah, but I like watching things kind of come, come together too. Yeah. Makes me appreciate watching comedians appreciate other comedians. Mm-hmm. Cause they'll like work stuff out on like together. Like, Oh, that's a good bit. And then like, kind of, you know, like you'll hear about that in the next special, like, there's there's been a couple moments where I'm like, yeah, that'll probably be in this guy's next special. This yeah. guy that just bombed. And it's like, yeah. you can, like you can see him like in his brain, like, ooh, there's something there. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, it's funny to watch. I, like I like you said, I like being able to see the development over time too. Of like mm-hmm. watching somebody kind of tweak some things, and you mm-hmm. see some things fail, and then they come back together. Like mm-hmm. I've been watching. Um, have you heard anything about Choo Choo Charles? Mm-hmm. It's it's a game in development about a train that also is maybe part spider. 
and tries to attack you while you drive around on your train. Um, it sounds crazy. What a it is crazy. Yeah. But the thing that is interesting about it is the guy who's developing it has developed this sort of strange cult following because he keeps posting these developer videos. So he's a single guy developing this game where he was like, what if I made a game about a spider train that attracts you? And like, he kind of ran with it, but everything Mm -hmm. he posts on YouTube is more about the development of the game and bugs he's run into. And like, he's packaging it into this sort of behind the scenes development where like, there's no way this game is going to be great but watching it be built and like watching him work through the bugs and the bugs are always pretty amusing. You know, like the enemies start flying off the map and it's kind of crazy to watch. Like, but like watching somebody work through the process is weirdly interesting. Yeah. So like I, I subscribe just to watch him program the game about the spider train. Like, (laughs) yeah, that's wild. I've watched Tommy do that. Tommy, um, for those of you that, well, he was my roommate in college. He's a software guy. He's also making his own game. So I've watched him do similar things. And like the other day I was down there, um, down at his apartment. And we were going over basically like this probability math code, because what happens is like mm-hmm. you're split. It's not necessarily a maze game, but the, the computer, like the AI or the, not the AI, the game will basically spawn walls. Sure. And he was trying to get it. So it would be random but it would like make sense. And what had happened was when he clicked go, they just went like all on top of each other. And it was ridiculous. So yeah, I've watched him do the same as well. And then uh, Kevin um, was on episode 20 also as a a video game developer. So Mm -hmm. yeah, that that world is, that's that's another weird world there. Software, the software guys are. Right. (laughs) That's true. That's true. It's a lot like, Another interesting bunch <laughs> just to That's see how your brain sure. works. Yeah. I tried a little bit of it in college and the patience to like comb through code to find mm-hmm. that one extra period that broke the whole thing. I was like, yeah, no, I'm out. Yeah. Well, and, and like you said, I mean, the, the code starts to do weird things on its own. Mm-hmm. You're like, I never intended to do it. Like, and then I, you dig into it. You're like, oh, okay, I see how the logic tree led me here. Yeah. But, you've got to like, you're always creatively coming up with a new solution to a problem mm-hmm. that you made. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> so it's an interesting thing to watch. Like I like watching the iterations of it. Yeah. Um, I have no interest in doing it, but no, I enjoy no, watching whatsoever. people. I enjoy the solutions people come up with. Like one of the ones on this last development episode, he realized that one of the, um, the NPC arms he'd made were too short. Mm-hmm. And so the person was sitting on a chair and their arms were just sort of floating in midair because the arms were too short. <laughs> and so he was like, I mean, I could try to fix the the model, but instead I just gave her a pet rock. So now there's a rock sitting on her, like, <laughs> like so that her, her arms are sitting on the rock and now it makes sense. But like, it's all that kind of like inside baseball of, yeah. well, I could fix the code, but instead I just put a rock there and now it looks okay. Yeah. It's- Efficiency of time. Uh-huh. Oh my gosh, that's wild. Well, speaking of solutions, we have offered a lot of problems tonight with no solutions. So, no, none whatsoever. We've been talking for almost two hours, 10.30. Wife is about to give birth. I'll let you go. It's going to be the last night that you could maybe sleep for for like three months. True. So, (laughs) I'll plug mine and you plug yours. Get your shirts. World XP Soccer on Instagram. DM us. I've still got a bunch. Please buy them. 
Chris, your book is out on Amazon. It's called, what's it called again? What the heck is a clinical trial and where do I find one? There you go. Link will be in the description. Go buy it. Even if you don't want it, buy it anyways. And review it, please. Because right now it's it. creepy. There's no reviews. It's creepy. Oh, Nobody will I, buy it. Well, yeah. Put a review on Amazon. You don't even have to buy it. Just say, <laughs> say, say it's good. Something. Anything. That's the thing with these these like online stuff. Any Anything helps. Like a like, yep. a subscription, a review. Yes. Anything helps gain more traction with the, the algorithm that no one actually knows how it works. But Exactly. All right. All right. This has been a great discussion. I appreciate your time. Always a pleasure. Any last nickels? No, I think we covered it all. All right. Let's get out of here. All right. We'll talk to you guys later. Peace.